My name is Colin Marston. How's it going? And you are listening to the Brutally Delicious Podcast. The Brutally Delicious Podcast presents Behind the Desk. Hello. Colin. Yes. Hey, Bruce Moore. I got my partner, Chris, on the line. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for joining us. Where are you at? You're in Brooklyn now? Uh, Queens, actually. But yeah, yeah, close enough. <laughs> what's, it, what's the uh, scene like in, uh, in Queens these days? Um, well, um, I pretty much stay in my studio and then go to the park every now and then, and that's about it. I haven't left my neighborhood since March. So it's, I don't know. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a neighborhood in New York. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of people, <laughs> uh, but it's one of the better ones. I, I, I like, uh, uh, I like being here and the, you know, proximity to the park makes for like a nice balance of the, the super urbanness of it. Right. No, I, I get it. I'm originally from Valley stream, which is not too far from where you're at. Oh yeah, yeah, right on. Uh, uh, some of the my buddies from Artificial Brain uh, are from Valley Stream. Um, oh wow! And actually, one of my uh, one of my studio interns is from there too. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've been out of there for like thirty years now, but I'm originally from Valley Stream. Cool, cool. I bet you it's changed a little in thirty years. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, I'm sure it's exactly the same. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, anyway, are, are you managing to stay fairly busy uh, right now? With work, you mean, or yeah, just yeah, like with, in with, life? With recording or mixing? Or... Yeah, well, um, yes and no. So, uh, like, as of as of March, I stopped doing attended sessions, so I haven't had a single person in the studio in six or seven months. Um, and at the time, it was really scary because uh, I had, you know, I'm usually booked three, four months in advance, like pretty much every single day, and. So having like that much work drop away all at once was pretty terrifying. Um, but the good news is that like a couple of those records that I was supposed where I was supposed to have the whole band here, they just turned into remote recordings with people like doing what they could at home or like I was supposed to record a band from Denver, so they weren't going to come out here anymore, but they we're able to go to a local studio in a safe way and track it there. And then I still got to mix it. Um, so even like with, uh, with malignancy, like a, like a local New York band that went from them coming into the studio to then me setting, you know, doing a consultation with Ron to set him up to record at home. Um, and then send me tracks to edit and reamp. So, you know, some of that work I was able to salvage others, other records just still haven't been done like the artificial brain. Um, and then some other stuff just got, just got canceled. But, um, the good news is that all the remote work is still very much in effect. So mastering is pretty much always remote anyway. And half the time I'm working with bands that are from, you know, Singapore or Belarus or Italy or whatever anyway. So they're not going to be coming in in the first place. So that's still there. And then like, I'm just getting a, like a, maybe I'm not going to say a higher percentage, but just enough mixing work and mastering work to stay afloat. Um, well, so yeah, it's been like a lot of, a lot of lost work, but also a lot of sort of unexpected last minute work Yeah, have you, uh, have, and, and at least enough for now. Yeah. Have you looked into the like uh, audio movers listen to plugin? 
No, I'm not sure what that is. Okay, so it allows you to stream lossless wave files over the internet. So, like, um, okay. I don't know, are you using Pro Tools or what are you using? I use Logic. Logic, yeah, it works in Logic too. So basically, what happens is you open up this plugin on a track, so you can put it on your master fader or any right. other track, and it streams based on your internet connection. So, like, if your internet connection is slow, you'll have to choose a lower bit rate to go, but you can stream 24-bit yep. 48K files straight over the internet um, if your internet cool. can keep up. And you can you can actually... I've done sessions this way during, the, um, during COVID where someone's, say, in Vancouver, Canada, and I'll be like, okay, let's track this, and I can produce from afar because I can listen in my session and record it in my session while they're also playing and recording in their session. Uh, that's cool. No, I haven't... Uh... I haven't looked into anything like that. I mean, the thing is because even before the pandemic, I was doing a lot of remote work too. I mean, yeah, I don't really know what it boils down to in terms, in terms of percentage of like attended versus non-attended, but I've, I've gotten pretty used to working both ways. So it's not like I only like to work where I'm like with the person, you know, giving them feedback in the moment. Like I'm happy to work on recordings also where like, I just give all that trust to the musician. They do their thing and then they just send me it. And, you know, some of the times I get stuff to work on that's pretty horribly engineered, like the thing I'm working on right now. <laughs> it's a terrible, terribly engineered recording. I won't name any names. Um, it's a cool record. The music's great. And the thing is, it doesn't, like, ruin the record that it's badly engineered. Like, I'm able to salvage it enough and it's kind of a got a garage vibe. So it's sort of okay. But, yeah, I, you know... I, I think it's the thing is like I'm kind of I'm kind of used to that so it's like if it's a if it's a situation where like it really is a problem I'll tell the band and then they'll they'll decide whether to redo it or not but uh, it's kind of cool I think it's it's actually in a in a way kind of kind of good to like force yourself to be a little bit more open to like a wider variety of types of recordings and of like standards of engineering. Um, cause you know, like in the past, like I used to get really, really bothered when somebody would bring something in that was badly engineered or badly edited. And then I kind of realized like, well, I'm like really under the microscope with this shit. So if I was somebody just hearing a record that was badly recorded and I listen to badly recorded records all the time, <laughs> it, it doesn't have the same impact and weight if you're just a listener than if you're like, you know, getting paid to work on it and make it sound flawless. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. A good friend of mine always says that music is about art and culture, you know, and if, if absolutely. there's a certain threshold that you have to cross um, to, to make it listenable, but once you cross that threshold, the rest is just gravy. Right. You know, like, and, and the thing is, that's such a personal thing like what that threshold is it's 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 almost subjective enough to not even exist as like a concrete line right so if that's the case then it's like that line could kind of be at a wide variety of places depending on who you are oh absolutely um, and you know and aesthetics plays into it too i mean for certain types of music you don't really want like a squeaky clean recording yeah maybe you don't want to hear like a pop from a bad edit or something but <laughs> Even if that's in there, maybe half the people won't notice it and it won't like ruin the song. So even at its worst, I feel like, you know, bad, bad recordings, whatever you want to call bad, 
isn't necessary. It's never going to be bad for everybody, I guess is what I'm saying. I right. Think, I think, too, with bad recordings, it's really cool at, from a mixer's point of view where you, you really have to kind of challenge yourself to get it to a point where you feel you've crossed a threshold. And, yeah. and you're forced to do things that maybe you wouldn't normally do, you know? So. Totally, totally. Yeah, I end up doing a lot more processing on mixes where the where the recording is kind of shitty. And, you know, if I just kind of like being the kind of guy where in when I, when I have the control in my studio, I like to, you know, get the best, take the best picture of the sound, so to speak, I can, and then not fuck with it that much after the fact, you know, because that's like, that's the ideal. But hey, you're right. Like, if you get something that's kind of fucked up sounding, and you end up putting a lot of work into it to get it to a place where you sh- you think it sounds cool, then there's like a certain degree of uh, of like triumph and, and and growth in that, and and just forcing yourself to do things differently and not always do something the same way, so that when you're faced with something a little bit different, you're not like, oh, I don't know what to do. Oh yeah, it's it's insane. It's also given me a lot of ideas for. New plugins, <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> <laughs> nice. You mean like plugins that don't exist that you sort of imagine? Like, oh, I'm always doing this. I wish I had a plugin that did that. Yeah, yeah. Like for instance, I'm sure you've run into this in your travels where you get a guitar track and there's nothing you can do to it. Like it's just totally <laughs> fucked. And right. you have the DI track and it still sucks. And there's like you and it's played fine. It's played well. But like the pickup is fucked or just something's wrong, you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's 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 full of ground hum or like yeah, it's, yeah, just just or, the radio interference or, or it's something. Super harsh or or yeah, super just the tone is bad. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So like the other, I I have um this Axio interface and it has an impedance changer on it. So mm-hmm. it's a variable impedance knob, so you can go from high impedance to low impedance, but anywhere in between. And I, yeah, yeah. I, I was like, how am I going to deal with this guitar? There's, I threw every plug-in I had at it because the amp sound was completely unusable. I was like, I don't know what to do. So I actually just took the, the, the line output out and threw it into the DI and changed the uh, impedance. And it was like, fuck, that works so good. So Wow, that's so cool. And that's not something I would have ever thought of unless, you know... You're faced with that situation. You were kind of like at your wit's end, and you were like, "Well, nothing I've done done works. I'm going to try something I've never tried before." Yeah. So, like, <laughs> what's what's one thing that you've had to go through like that, where you've been forced to try something that you haven't done before? Oh man, I, I feel like there should be like a really good example right on the tip of my brain because I the second you said that, I was like, "Oh, I've totally been there." But I'm trying to think of a good. Example. I mean, the record I'm working on right now is kind of a weird situation where, like, you know, there's two guitarists, and in one song, I might have in the same track a combination of different amp sounds, levels, DIs, all thrown together. <laughs> so I guess that's actually, that's, that's more not like, oh, no, I need a new approach. That's more like, okay, I have to, like, go through, separate, the different amps and the DIs, reamp the DIs through through an amp that I have, and then go in and like use kind of extreme EQing and gating and so on to like, you know, try to remove ground hum from this one part where this one amp was kind of fucked. Or maybe they were using like a single coil pickup for one part of the riff. 
going through with a game plugin and automating all the changes where like they clearly like punched in on different days with different levels, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, so yeah, I've definitely done some record. Oh, I, I, along those lines, I remember there was another record I did. I don't get into this kind of shit too much anymore with drum sound replacing, but I got like a really garagey recording of a drum kit with four toms, but he only used two mics. So oh, the two rack toms shared a mic and the two floor toms shared a mic. So what I had to do to be able to sound replace them was to go through, listen to every drum fill, and the guy was constantly doing drum fills, <laughs> and separate the two toms of each pair, and then kind of go in with the Drumagog plug-in and like automate the threshold for basically every drum hit so that it wasn't like double-triggering or missing hits. And then I think I had like two layers of Drumagogs because I had one that was sort of like a close mic and one that was sort of a room mic so I could get a kind of a natural sound. Anyway, that was a long time ago. And at this point, I'd probably just be like, all right, let me, let me, oh, you know what? I have a great example for your question I just thought of. Um, Imperial Triumphant's record, Abyssal Gods, uh, was a record where like I had recorded them in the studio a couple times. And then for that record, they decided to sort of do it themselves and they tracked the drums at their drummer's house. Um, and you know, he's an amazing drummer, but a terrible engineer. And <laughs> or at least at the time, maybe he's gotten better, but like the editing was bad. There was like, you know, like the snare drum was just like a square wave, like something had gone wrong, like in the preamp or something and oh, nobody noticed. So it was it was kind of so fucked up sounding, but the music of that band is very sort of fucked up and uncomfortable and dissonant. So I was like, all right, instead of trying to clean this up, let's go the other way and make this record sound just horrid. Just like, let's distort everything more and just get a really extreme, bizarre, uncomfortable, uh, you know, very like wrong sounding um, tone to the to the album. And it, and it, and it that was that was a lucky situation because it really fit the music. If it was like a country pop record that was for the radio and you know trying to get a hit single, probably wouldn't be the vibe. Although that would be pretty fucking interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's send this. We chatted with those guys just recently about with their new record. Say again. We chatted with the Imperial Triumphant just recently on their new release or new history. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wait, what? What about the new album? We chatted with them recently when they were. Promoting. Oh, cool, cool, excellent. Yeah, they're ni nice guys. Yeah, I love that band. I've actually been working with them pretty much from the beginning, um, and yeah, and like I said, like uh, gotten to do kind of everything from having them in the studio. Like for the last two records, it was the whole band in the studio, and I got to do everything from the ground up. But there was a sort of a middle period where they were they were doing a lot of the of the home recording, and and, and that was sort of the weird the weird sounding records. Right. But you know, in retrospect now it's really cool that that happened because it's like, I never would have, like you said before, like I never would have arrived at a record that would sound quite like that. If, if it hadn't had that whole backstory and we just sort of like decided, okay, let's, let's go into some uncharted territory and try to get something that's like, let's focus more on unique and scary than like, you know, proper. Right. That makes sense. Let's let's do I'm going to change topics here for a second. What's your approach to drum recording? How how do you like for instance, I mean, most people mic close mics fairly similar, 
But what about like mm-hmm. overheads? Are you looking more for a picture of the drum kit with your overheads? Are you using like space pair? Are you doing left, center, right? How do you approach the overheads on on your drum kits? Hmm. It's it's you know I would say it's not the same every time, but um, if if I had like a go to, um, it's usually a pair of uh, Coles forty thirty eights for my overheads. Nice and. Um, I do like, I usually have them pointed either kind of straight up and down or a little bit, um, like, how do I say this? A little bit like out, like, uh, like almost like it's a super wide ORTF that's, that's at less than 110 degree angle. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, uh, because the thing is with those figure eights, you have the, you have the nulls on the side. So if I want to like widen the stereo image, um, I can kind of like angle the mics out towards the sides of the kit a little bit more and cut, you know, the, the bleed, um, from the other side. But the thing is the two, the two, you don't get like a super, super clean stereo image with those mics anyway, cause they're, because they are figure eight and they pick up from the back. So they get a, they get a, you know, fair amount of room sound in there too, which kind of blurs the left and the right. So that's kind of good. Cause I also, with those mics, um, I have a pretty live sounding live room. Uh, so I like to get in fairly close with them. Um, you know, not, not, I don't have them like five feet above the symbols. They're like, you know, maybe two feet from the symbols or three yeah. feet or something, man. You know, um, I'm, and, I'm, and the thing is that it depends, it depends on the size of the kit too. Like you were saying, like, do I do left center, right? Sometimes I will do a center or like if if the drummer has like high crashes on either side, but then has like a bunch of splashy small cymbals like right over the toms, I might come in with some close mics there. It, it kind of just depends on like I just eyeball it and I and I see what's you know how many what stuff is far from any mic, and then maybe <laughs> add another one. That's cool. I've never tried uh, figure eights as overheads before. I was using KM-184s for years, you know, just small diaphragm condensers, and they were fine and whatever. And then when I got the coils, I was just like, oh, my God, what have I been doing? And, and, and never went back, pretty much. That's um, amazing. They're just so much sort of thicker sounding. I end up having to roll out a little bit of low end sometimes because I don't have a huge, huge room. Um but uh, they, they're just fucking perfect for, for, what I, for what I like. They're never brittle, never harsh, um, you know, even with added top end and stuff. And I'm usually also spot-miking the ride in the hat with the KM184. So those end up being very bright, but I have them pretty low in the mix with the, with the coals, you know, at the, the main overheads. So yeah, I was just... I was and then I always, just, I always have room mics, too. I was just going to ask, do you ever use your recorded hat track? Yeah, it's always real, real low in the mix. And if it's mostly open hat, maybe I wouldn't even use it at all. I mean, it's the lowest thing in the mix, period. Um, but then every now and then with certain drummers, you get, uh, you know, like some intricate closed hi-hat stuff, and, and, and that's where it comes in handy. Or even sometimes you can just get a slightly crisper stereo image of yeah. the of the symbols if you sneak it in there like you don't you barely even hear it but it just kind of gives a little bit of definition um yeah I, i'm always talking shit about sound guys 
miking the hi-hat is like the third thing. It's like, oh, I don't know if we have, if we can mic the bass cab. I'm like, you're fucking miking the hi-hat. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the whole bass player isn't important, but this one instrument that's the loudest thing in the room, let's get a mic on that. <laughs> yeah, and from a, from a production point of view, how do you deal with hat bashers? Um... I don't know. I've never had a huge, huge problem with it when I'm mixing for whatever reason. Certain recordings that I've gotten from other people, yes, maybe, but um, I don't know. Like, you know, I look at some other drummers that are using like crazy ways to sort of isolate the hat from the rest of the kit or whatever, but I don't know. For some reason, it's never been one of my personal like main struggles as an engineer i got plenty of other ones you're very but, um, lucky <laughs> yeah i mean sure it's an issue sure it's an issue yeah i recognize it but it's just like for whatever you know it's like there's certain things that you pull your hair out about as an engineer that really just get to you and for some reason that's just not high on the list um yet in general the washiness of symbols annoys me but i tend to get more annoyed by like washing out on the like crashing on the ride symbol for like five minutes at a time or just constant crashing <laughs> than I do by by hi hats for whatever reason. Then you'll um, never want to make extra, a, you'll never want to make a drum sample library if that bothers you. <laughs> oh, I've done that. I've done that too. I've done that too. Um, oh my god! But yeah, I don't know. It's like I've got such a love for that instrument for the drum kit that it's like when you go so deep with it, you kind of end up having a you have to have a love-hate relationship with it after a while same with guitar with distorted guitar it's like it's the best sound ever and it's the fucking hardest thing ever to mix and then you combine distorted guitar and fucking crash cymbals and it's like it's all over it's impossible yeah it's just (laughs) distorted guitar is just like this wall that covers everything but it has to be it has to be there it's because it's so And it beautiful. has to be like articulate and kind of a wall of noise at the same time. <laughs> and then you have the other wall of noise that's the drum kit and the other wall of noise that's the death metal vocals and the other wall of noise that's the, the bass and nobody ever rests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you approach bass? Are you a DI or an amp person or do you combine? How do you deal with that? Um, I often will record DIs for guitar and bass, but just for reamping. I hardly ever use a DI in, in the mix, in the traditional way. Um, I actually end up using DI guitar for like special effects way more than DI bass. I don't think I've like ever used DI bass on a record. Um, except for like on a rock record, maybe like for, you know, there's weird experimental examples for like, like reggae or, you know, something like that, like something more like hip hop close, you know, adjacent or something where you want to, you want it to almost sound like a synthesizer. But in general, I'm, I'm, I'm very much an amp guy. And, um, I'm also a little bit opposed to amp simulators. I, I definitely like use them for demos and I use them for certain, certain things where it makes more sense, but it's like, if I can use an app, I'll use an app. I'm, I'm just really into like miking and that whole side of recording. Oh, I'm with you. I, I, I started my, um, recording career in, um, like world-class studio in Vancouver, British Columbia. And cool. just the ability to mic and have mics and, and deal with the real world of recording, you know, 
Like the first right. thing I noticed when I went to your website is that you had a tape machine. And every time I see a yes. tape, every time I see a tape machine, I have nightmares because that's how I started. But um, <laughs> but it there's something about tape machines because you had to listen. You didn't. You were an engineer, not an engine eye. If that makes any yes. sense, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so so, are you still working on tape and then transferring to Logic? Or are you recording through the tape through the tape to Logic? How are you dealing with that? I am at my website is actually super out of date and I don't work on tape anymore, but I had a pretty, you know, a long, a long period of, of having the basic way I worked would be to do the basic tracking to tape, the, the 24 track. Um, and I had a Sony at first and then that machine got kind of too unreliable. And then I got the fucking Studer 800, um, which were just awesome. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I would do the basic tracking to tape, dump the reel to the computer. And I, and at that point, I think I was mostly recording 15 inches per second. So I would at least get like 32 minutes on a, <laughs> on a reel as opposed to the, the, the little 16 minutes before you have to, that, that would get pretty, pretty difficult sometimes with bands with long songs and you want to do two takes and then all of a sudden you do a false start and you're out of, you're out of room and then you got to erase the tape and that that machine didn't erase as well as the sony so i actually had to go back and erase and then record like i had to i had to basically record, record silence before i would do another recording over top of it or sometimes you'd hear it bleeding through um but yeah uh vocals and overdubs i'd pretty much just do digitally and i've i pretty much always mixed digitally like ever since i moved from four track cassette to a computer I was like, oh, computer mixing is the is, is the way. And I mean like in the box. Yeah. Like no no summing, no I, I think I tried, you know, mixing on my console once or twice and it it just was like what's the point? I didn't really have a snazzy console anyway. It was just a task cam. It was more for routing signal, doing headphone mixes. And um I don't know, it's just like that's the way I've always worked is in a computer. I'm super I grew up with Macintoshes, I'm comfortable with them. I, I'm fine sitting there clicking a mouse a billion times a day. Like, that's fine. Um, and the thing is, like, having the ability of total recall of all settings and being able to come back to a mix whenever, not having to, like, leave a mix up on the board and, like, up on all your outboard gear and stuff until it's done, and then you have no ability to kind of come back and pick up where you left off. That's just necessary for me because I don't live in a universe where I can just like make one record every three months. Yeah. Like I need to be working on 10 records at a time all the time. Right. In order to like pay the bills. Like that's just the way it is. And then, you know, plus bringing in the music that I want to make for my own shit. I want to be working on that at the same time. I don't want to like wait to finish somebody else's record until they've decided it's done just to be able to like use my amp again. Like, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's the thing that I found, you know, after I, I, cause I grew up mixing on like SSL desks or whatever. And then I yeah. started mixing in pro tools and I just was like, Oh man, this is so good. And then I, I, I was asked to go back and mix on a, on a desk. And I just was like, Holy shit. This slowed me way down. Like I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't work as fast. I couldn't do the things I want. I couldn't make decisions as quickly as I wanted sure. to. Sure. So, I always yeah, have... I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. 
I was just going to say, and I think it all comes down to what you're used to. Um, you know, you can get used to anything. So it's like, if I, if I, if I did have, if I did live in a world where it was possible to do it, do things the old school way. And I started doing that. Maybe I just really get into it and just be like, Oh, I can't imagine like, what the hell was I doing trying to mix seven, 10 records at the same time? That's ridiculous. Like how, how can I keep my attention span like that? You know, but it's like, whatever, that's, that's a skill I've developed now. But if I wasn't developing that skill, I'd be developing a difference. Right. So yeah, you never know. What um, a, what? But that, I got to say that 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 ability to multitask, so to speak, and 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 to come back to things, it, it's not just good for me. It's good for the for the clients too. I mean, like, yes, at a certain point, you need to say something's done, and you don't want to always you don't want to like be mixing your record for the rest of your life. But the thing is, like, they, they're having to pay me to do that anyway. So th- th- there's there are deterrents built in from like spending forever working on a record. Yeah. A mix um, is never done until you run out of time, money or both. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and isn't it just better to like, just in all things in life, but especially with something like music, just like do your best. Don't, don't shortchange yourself. Don't like half ass it, but do your best. And then once that's done, move on and, and learn from that experience. Don't, don't like re-record your first album 10 times. Like, what, what are you going to learn from that? Like, what, why don't you just write a different song yeah, and, and, and right. inform that song by like what the last record was like, and then just get into that journey and embrace that. And you'll just, I don't know, you'll just be, you'll get a lot more done. And I think you'll be happier if you, if you tend to be on that side of things rather than the like, Oh, I didn't get this one thing. Perfect. I remember what reading an perfect? interview. There's no such thing as perfect. It's fucking the arts. There's, there's no perfect or imperfect. It just is what it is. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I remember reading an interview with Bruce Sweetie, and, and he said that they had mixed Beat It by Michael Jackson over a hundred times. I read that article too. And, and they used like wow. mix number two or three. It was number two. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and dude, that was when it was all on fucking half inch tape. Yeah, they got the stack of mixes. Yeah, they they couldn't even they couldn't even take the mix down. You know, like they were just <laughs> revising and revising and like how many weeks did that take? My god. <laughs> oy, oy, oy. Yeah. I don't I mean I just can't imagine that was a healthy experience for anyone involved. <laughs> and think about all the money that was sort of wasted. And I mean it's like you could you could be like, all right, well yeah, the studio got paid for all that time, but it's like wouldn't it have been cooler if they made seven other albums in the meantime? And, <laughs> yeah. and I don't know. I imagine working on that record and then you're like, Oh, finally it's done. I don't have to listen to it anymore. And then, and then it's thriller, and that's the only thing that you hear for the next like two years. Right, you can't ever escape it. Yeah, that's the ironic thing about like you know something like the Black Album, or you know, it's like these, you spend so much time and money on it, and then it's just like, oh, now you can't ever escape this song. Never, like all of humanity right. has to listen to Enter Sandman on repeat until we die. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great, um, Bruce. Do I have time for one more? You got time for one more? We're, I emailed people and told them we're a little be, we're a little behind. So I'm, I'm just really enjoying this this conversation. No, that's fine. We got about five more. Um, what's uh, what's your approach to tracking guitars? Like, are you a fifty-seven uh, four twenty-one guy? How do you kind of go about it? Right on, right on. Uh, so, uh, one fun fact is that I don't 
own an SM57 and never have. Wow. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I'm kind of a little weird when it comes to mics. I'm like a kind of, I'm, well, okay, no, I'm not going to say I only use ribbons, but I use a lot of ribbons and a lot of condensers and not that much dynamic mic. Um, I did get, uh, I have a Sennheiser 441. I don't have any 421s either. Uh, 441 and the 441 was kind of, kind of my favorite guitar mic for a while, but then I started moving more in the direction of doing like a ribbon and a condenser. And then, I don't know, I do all sorts of different things. Like the, the reamping I was doing just now, I was just, just only doing a condenser on the Fender Twin. Um, for like heavy, like death metal guitars, I've kind of been getting into doing a pair of uh, Royer 122, the active ribbon. Yeah, and yeah. actually having the guitar kind of quiet. And then blending the active ribbon with a Sennheiser 409, like the old discontinued gold one. Oh my God, um, that is... oh. Don't even get me started. That's, that's like just, my favorite mic. Yeah, that's such a cool pair because the 409 is like all mids and high mids with like no lows and no super highs. And the 122 has this really rich low mid range and this very pleasant high end. And you can kind of EQ the, the shit out of it. Um, and so as a pair, they kind of give you these, these very contrasting signals which really blend together. So yeah, to... to to kind of like answer your question, I like doing combinations of mics a lot and I don't use SM57. <laughs> <laughs> and and another awesome. thing I like doing a lot, like, so I like doing this when I'm recording like a full metal band, let's say everybody plays live together in the live room. Um, and I have everybody's amps in ISO booths. I have three ISO booths here at the studio and then a live room. So I could record like a quartet with everybody isolated uh, and then for each of the maybe two guitars and bass, I'll mic the amp with one or two mics and I'll take a DI and for the, and then that way, if we don't get exactly the sound we want with the live tracking, I'll just either throw out the sound of the, of the live take, but get the live performance and then reamp it and spend as long as we want. And a lot of times I'll run guitar through two amps. I'll do like a cleaner amp and a heavy distorted amp together. Um, or two different kind of heavy distorted amps, like a scoop death metal tone and like a more modern mid rangey tube amp uh, together. So yeah, I really like doing like combinations of tones to make a tone rather than doing lots of overdubs. I do, you know, overdubs are cool too, but like rather than like tracking apart six times, I'd rather do like one awesome performance through two amps a lot of the time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, well, cool. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time with us. I could I could take this conversation <laughs> all day long. This right. is, this oh, yeah, man. This engineering shit, don't even get me started. It's like, yeah, somebody will come up to me after a show and be like, you know, ask me some engineering questions. Like, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I don't want to wish. I'm like, dude, I, I could fucking talk about this shit all day. <laughs> That's kind of why we started this, uh, this spinoff from our regular podcast. And we've been talking to producers along the way. And I didn't get much chance to talk this time, thanks to Chris. But sorry. I really appreciate Oh, I appreciate you taking the time. <laughs> <laughs> Throw him under the bus there. <laughs> he always do does. <laughs> but I learned a lot. And I appreciate you taking the time, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you very much. I told you we wouldn't take too much of your time. You still have time to get to your appointment, right? Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah, yeah. It's not for another hour. Okay, great. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. You guys rule. Thanks so much. You too, man. I'll send you a link when it's up. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. 
Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.